Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission 7 Billion Fulfilled People, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Guy Winch. Dr. Guy is a psychologist, author and speaker whose books have been translated into 24 languages. His most recent are Emerged Emotional First Aid, Healing Rejection, Guilt, Failure and Other, and other Everyday Hurts, and how to fix a broken heart, which I think comes out in 10 days. And uh, this is what he spoke about at his most recent TED annual conference. And alongside amazing speakers, I was, lo- I was looking on the, um, on the lineup and I think it was like Elon Musk, uh, Serena Williams, I think even the Pope was on it. So this is like some pretty big hitters. And his previous TED talk, Why We All Need to Practice Emotional First Aid, has been viewed over 5 million times and is rated among the top five most inspiring talks of all time on TED.com. So, massive honour, Guy. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Our minds and our feelings are not the the trustworthy friends that we like to think they are. If if they're not these trustworthy friends, if they're not our allies, what what exactly are they? Well, they're, they're what we have. It's what we come with. And if we could develop some kind of operating manual for our brain that would tell us how to manage our feelings and when we can trust our instincts and when the thoughts and feelings our mind generates are actually reliable and useful versus when we should ignore them, that would be great. We don't have that yet. Maybe we will in a 100 years. We're not close to it. But we do know of certain situations in which you shouldn't trust your mind. We do know of certain times in which you have to ignore what your feelings are telling you. And so we can start working on some basic situations while we're waiting for the whole operating manual to be uh, developed somewhere. I, I like the analogy where you described um, we wouldn't make a physical injury worse on purpose. That, that seems obvious. You know, if, if we've got a cut on our arm, no one gets a knife out and like, makes it even deeper. But when it comes to psychological injuries... That's pretty much exactly what we do all the time. Could you maybe just give a, like another example of how we do that when it comes to our mind? Well, for example, one of the most common things we do when we get rejected, uh, romantically, socially, in some kind of way, is we start very automatically thinking of all our flaws and all our shortcomings. And we think, oh, well, if I was taller, then, you know, she would be interested. Or, you know, if I were prettier, he would like me more. And, you know, if I were more successful, and if only I didn't say this or do that. And in fact, it's a very interesting thing because our mind will really take us down this, this rundown of everything that we don't like about ourselves at the very time our self-esteem is hurting and actually needs us to revive it, to support it, Um, our mind is going to try and and get us to kind of kick it when it's down. And it's one of those times we actually have to refuse to follow those thoughts and feelings and actually impose our wish in terms of what we think is the emotionally healthier tactic to take in that moment. Why don't you think we, just as a society, why, why don't we prioritize our psychological health? Why isn't it in the same category as physical health? Look, it's a luxury in a way, right? I mean, if uh, if, if we're in a war zone, um, then no one's uh, walking around thinking, you know, I need to consider my happiness. Really, no, you don't. You need to consider your survival. Mm. And with survival, the first priority is your physical being rather than your emotional being. And so, you know, up until recently, it was about survival. It was about just getting through, having enough food, having enough shelter, being safe. In many areas of the world, um, that is still 
the priority. But in the developed countries and in many other places, um, our survival is not so much at issue. And now we can afford to actually look at, okay, it's not just that we'll get through life, but how are we going to get through life? What's, what's our happiness about? What's our emotional health about? What is our functionality and our achievement about? And then we go to the realm of emotions. Then we go to the realm of emotional health. And we are very new to that um, journey. So we, we haven't started thinking about a global way of making that a priority and learning what are the ways in which we can uh, do better in terms of uh, keeping our emotional health uh, at, at its peak performance as much as possible. It's interesting that you just use the... Um, the uh the analogy of war because isn't it i mean I, I might be wrong here but like when in times of war don't um like suicide rates go down like depression because because it's sunny like survival and it's like this is what we got to like focus on that um we don't like you said we don't have time to be like the, the, the suicide rates actually go down like which is interesting maybe people would think it'd be the opposite but is that just for that exact reason what you just described absolutely Absolutely. I mean, it's true that in times of war or conflict or big uh, kind of uh, national uh, global events, uh, people are less concerned with, oh, my anxiety, oh, my depression, because it gives a sense of perspective about what really matters in the larger picture. And you take, because there's something selfish about depression, not that people are selfish who experience it. Depression is all about I'm miserable, I'm not okay. It's a very self-focused kind of situation. Um, War uh, gives a perspective. War makes you zoom out and see a larger picture. And that larger picture takes you away from your own uh, minutia, your own small little complaints and problems or big complaints and problems because there's a much bigger priority that's going on. So it actually does have a positive impact on emotional health. I'm not advocating that as the solution. <laughs> I was just about to say, because I mean, like, obviously, how do, you how do you find a way without needing the war to get there? Uh, well, okay, so if it's about zooming out and finding a larger perspective, uh, that's actually something that's actually very useful. Uh, we know, for example, one of the things I write about is loss. And we know that one of the best ways to recover from loss is to find some kind of larger meaning and purpose in the events that happened. Zooming out, thinking about the larger picture, the picture beyond you, is actually a great way to do that. So take some of the... Uh, 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 the byproducts of what war does to us emotionally and mentally and try and impose them without the war. Interesting. Where do you see, because one of the things you talk about is self-esteem. Where do you see the balance between, on the one hand, encouraging and supporting people versus people being wrapped in cotton wool and getting medals for just taking part? Well, the self-esteem uh, movement, such as it was, you know, was actually trying to implement changes in schools. Uh, it's, it was especially big in the States and California in the, in the 70s and, and 80s, even the 90s, and some of it lasted this to today. Uh, but what they were trying to do is improve the self-esteem. They thought that was the panacea. That would actually be the, you know, that would cure everything. There'd be less gang violence and less drug use and less teenage pregnancy. If anyone, if only everyone felt uh, better about themselves, perhaps, but the way people to feel better about themselves are the participation medals. Everyone was a winner. You know, the, 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 there were no failures. Everyone was... And the problem with that is that uh, we are um, attuned to uh, the uh, validity 
of self-esteem. We are tuned to how real it is. And, and you see that when you look at the research on positive affirmations. And positive affirmations are ones in which, you know, when, you, when you're saying to yourself, you know, you're, you're feeling, you know, rejected, you're feeling lonely, you want to find someone and you say to yourself, I I'm, I'm, I'm deserve love and I'm beautiful and I'm going to find someone. And, and the problem with those affirmations is that you are saying that to yourself at the moment you feel the opposite. You're saying it to yourself because you feel the opposite, because you don't feel attractive enough. You don't feel worthy enough. And the, posi- and the problem with those positive affirmations is that when somebody feels unattractive and unworthy and they say to themselves, I'm attractive and worthy, it's going to make them feel worse because it falls so far outside the domain of believability for them, outside what their actual beliefs are, that their mind rejects it. And so positive affirmations are absolutely wonderful for people who already feel great about themselves. It'll make them feel better. But people who actually don't feel great about themselves will feel worse. And so the issue, again, it's a self-esteem thing. It has to be believable. So what you do with positive affirmations, for those of already invested in Mm. the books and the refrigerator magnets and the calendars with the daily affirmations, um, what you need to do is tweak them to make them personalized, to make them individualized, to make them fall within the realm of what you know to be true. So rather than saying, I'm attractive and I'm beautiful and I'm worthy of love, you can say, I have great eyes, which assuming you have great eyes, um, or uh, there are plenty of men who find me good-looking. There are plenty of women who will find me good-looking or interesting. And if I keep trying, I'm likely to find someone, etc. In other words, you make it, you take it down a notch from I'm amazing, life will be amazing, to here's the real part of it in the positive way, like here are my great qualities, and that will lead me to someone who appreciates them. That's a much more believable uh, to ourselves a statement. And that will encourage us without uh, making us feel worse because it actually reminds us that that's not the reality. That's really interesting. I'm trying to think how taking on that and building on that, how can we push ourselves even further? So rather than feeling, okay, I have brown hair, I'm, you know, whatever, like how can we make it so it's even like more of a stretch? So we can start with the basics, like I've, you know, I'm, I'm, good with people i'm i'm friendly i'm loyal but then can we is there like a a middle ground there when once we build up that baseline of self-esteem then we can we can push ourselves even further so we're always striving to to grow and improve i don't know exactly what that question is but i want to no i actually i i do okay Uh, right you know what i'm not sure the question is but i I know what the answer is so um, (laughs) here's here's my (laughs) here's my answer to that uh we know from the self-esteem movement that what you should reinforce is uh, effort not results in other words, it's not about, oh, you great, you got an A or you got 100 and oh, it's a shame you only got 60. It's about what was your effort. Um, and if you reinforce effort, that makes it more likely for people to try and maximize uh, their efforts. The results will come or not, but if they're maximizing their efforts, that is the best thing do. For example, if you're a writer and you're trying to write, uh, don't set a goal of uh, 2,000 words a day. Set a goal of two hours a day where you sit at the typewriter. If you're trying to lose weight, don't set a goal of weight loss. Set a goal of um, exercise habits, of eating correctly. The weight loss will come when it comes. But you can't control outcome. You can control effort. And it's all about the effort. And so we need to find ways to push ourselves to optimize those efforts, to optimize our uh, optimism uh, so that we can actually feel more encouraged to keep trying. Uh, That is a much more important thing than to focus on results. 
your brother was diagnosed with stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And when you heard this news, um, you were overwhelmed with this constant stream of negative and worrying thoughts. It was just incessant. It was nonstop. And you were in this negative thought pattern. But I guess good news for you as, you know, as being a psychologist, you, you kind of, you knew what some of the studies and the research said, and you kind of knew how to get out of it. Could you maybe just explain what you did? Um, yes, and I'm actually going to get into a little bit more detail. I speak about this in my first TED talk, but what actually happened was he was diagnosed uh, because they found it by chance. He didn't have symptoms, and he was actually stage four at that time, and they said to him, um, here you are, uh, you have an average five years to live is what the life expectancy is with people, but we don't need to start treating you until the symptoms develop or until tumors grow to a certain size. They had all kinds of measures, and so sit tight. It's called Waitful Watching. You know, sit tight and we'll keep our eye on you and we'll start treating uh, when we need to. The issue there is, so that's like a sort of Damocles. It's like hanging over you. Mm. And how do you go on with life? Him. And for me, his twin brother, you know, you're just every day, you know, do you live in the fear? Do you focus on, is it now? Is it this? Is it that? Or do you get on with life? And what he chose to do is like, well, it'll happen when it happens. I'm going to focus on my health and my emotional health and get on with life. And um, he was very strong-willed in that way. And I found that it was a more, you know, it's a little easier perhaps to do when it's you. When it's not you, then you're like, you have no control over anything. And I was very much ruminating about it on a regular basis. And I found it difficult at first to get on with life. It was all I thought about. But a month or two go by and he realized this might take six months till he starts, a year, five, you know, we don't know. So there's no point in throwing away all the time you do have, throwing away the life you do have on the worry of what might happen when. So I used a technique which is, you know, I read about, which was a distraction technique for rumination, that when you have this ruminative thought uh, or worry, and as compelling as it might be about whatever it is, um, if you distract yourself for two minutes, um, the compulsion uh, to ruminate will pass. Now, it might reappear 10 minutes later, an hour later, in which you distract yourself again. But the distraction has to involve concentration. You know, you can't think, they're going, I'm not thinking about it, I'm not thinking about it. doesn't work in psychology, we get a rebound effect. So it's literally like, okay, I'm going to go and, and work on this puzzle, or I'm going to go and, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, uh, write an email to someone. And, um, and sure enough, you finish the email and you can start thinking about regular things again. But you have to be judicious about when you're, ruminating, when you're ruminating about something, you really have to tackle it so that every time you have that ruminative, not useful thought. Um, it could be, for example, oh, I just broke up with someone and I can't stop thinking about the breakup uh, conversation, but it's been two months and I'm still replaying it over and over. It's not useful. Um, distract yourself when that happens and the compulsion, the need, the, the, the way your mind generates that thought for you uh, will decrease and the urge will diminish and you'll be able to get over it. But you have to be judicious about fighting it. Is the reason that works, is that because like, our brain is like a serial processor, so it can only focus on one thing at a time? And so by you saying, okay, I'm going to give it something else, it can only focus on one thing at a time. As much as we love to think that we're big multitasking legends, you know, that's a myth. Our brain can only focus on one thing at a time. So you are consciously saying, brain, focus on this, and it can't, it can't focus on the other thing because of that uni kind of focusing. It's exactly right, and that's exactly how we need to think of our brain. We are a serial processor. We're not a, a, a dual processor or 
more. There are, as in other computers, you know, uh, uh, programs are running in the background all the time. Uh, however, um, in the foreground, uh, in your immediate memory, you usually have room for one. When we think we're multitasking, we're not. We're task switching. We're switching that single attention from one to the other, even rapidly, but we are not multitasking. We don't have a dual processor. So when you occupy that processor with the thought that you impose on it, yes, it has to then drop the other one. 100 years ago, people began practicing personal hygiene and life expectancy rates rose, I think, over 50% in just a few decades. And you believe that our quality of life could rise just as dramatically if we all began practicing emotional hygiene. Um, how can you paint a, like paint a vision for me, like paint a picture of like how an emotionally healthy society could be? So I'm going to give you just one snapshot because... It's a complex thing, society. But here's just one snapshot. What if in our schools, uh, when kids uh, failed their exams or their, their projects, uh, we didn't tell them, you know, that the failure was not uh, reported as, well, you failed. But rather, as since we assume that schools are, uh, are done so that every child should be able to succeed with the right amount of effort, any child that failed, the only thing that failed them was the system they used to study. Mm. In other words, something in their system wasn't adequate. They didn't study enough. They didn't start early enough. They didn't get help when they needed it. They uh, didn't sleep enough the night before. They got distracted during. They didn't manage their anxiety during. Whatever it is, it wasn't their intelligence that failed them. It was their system of preparing. And if that's the feedback, then every time a kid fails, it's like, here's a great opportunity because we can now tweak what's wrong with your system and fix it. And we're going to try this tweak and see if it goes better next time. And you'll tweak it. And if it goes better next time, great, until the next failure. And if not, you'll tweak the other thing until you correct the system. So to me, failure is always good news because it tells you where you have a blind spot, where you need to fix something in your system that will actually help you in way more than the immediate task in which it was identified. And so if kids use school, if we use school rather, to help children identify the best systems for them of studying, of preparing, of identifying places and times in their home life in which they can study, in which they know which methods work best for them, that's an amazingly valuable opportunity. Think of adults that fail at their jobs or that don't do well at their jobs. Um, many times they get feedback um, about, you need to work on this. And they take the feedback, usually in a very stinging way, and they get angry with it, rather than saying to themselves, hey, my boss just gave me this golden opportunity because he said, fix A. So now I know I'll fix A. I might not think A needs to be fixed. But if my boss thinks A needs to be fixed, me fixing it in a demonstrative way, he will then have to promote me because that's the goal he set and I can reach it. So it's actually, it's like, a, you know, it's like an easy lob, you know, when they're setting you up there because it, you, you can truly like, yeah, you're articulating what I need to fix, fix it or make the boss realize that it was fixed all along, but like that realize that there's something for you to work on. So to me, failures, just as this example of a snapshot, are great and crucial information that we need to use to improve our systems, how we're coming across, how we're communicating, how we're thinking of ourselves. They're opportunities. They're not, they shouldn't be these demoralizing statements about our ability. They're not about our ability. They're about our systems. So just that little thing, if we, society-wise, had a very different understanding of what failure means, rather than a negative thing, an opportunistic thing, 
what difference that alone would make in our society? And obviously that you could apply that to everything, like whatever you, you, you ask someone else, you, you ask someone out on a date and they say no, rather than suddenly immediately go to, I'm unlovable, I'm fat, I'm stupid. It's like, okay, well maybe I didn't, you know, I should have had more of a chat beforehand. Maybe I should have like, you know, in, had a better conversation. Maybe I should have done it this way or whatever. So you're kind of, again, you're looking at your system rather than like immediately on me, like what's wrong with me? It's like, okay, maybe I just didn't have an engaging enough conversation. How can I improve that for next time? So you're constantly, it's kind of, it's, it's back to that incremental steps. How can I get better? How can I get better? Right. I mean, the, the one example I had there is, um, you know, there's always circumstance, you know, in terms of, of being rejected. And, you know, you can quickly go to, oh, well, I'm not this or that, but it's about a match. It's a key and a lock. So you can have the most brilliant key in the world. If it doesn't fit that lock, it doesn't fit that lock. And that lock might know it. And it's not that your key isn't amazing. It doesn't fit that lock. And one example I'll give early on in my career, I worked with uh, a man who was a pastry chef. And he had uh, so many rejections. And he kept thinking, it's because of this, it's because of that. And at one point, he asked a woman, can I just ask you, you know, like, I thought we had good chemistry on our date. Why can I ask just why aren't you interested? And she said to him, you're a pastry chef. I'm going to get so fat if I date you. Um, and it was it was silly. And of course, she can date a pastry chef without getting fat. But but that was her fear. Now, when he heard that, maybe not all the women were rejected him because of that. But if some were. He spent so many hours thinking, oh, it's my chin, it's my this, it's my that. It's your pastries. It's nothing about you. And so, you know, it's, we, 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 we should assume the thing that benefits us most, not the thing that reduces us most. And uh, it's, a, it's a simple switch to make. You know, the, it's not you, it's, it's not me, it's you. When somebody says that, you know, sorry, when somebody says to you, it's not you, it's me, believe them. Yes, it's them. It's something about them. Why assume that it's you? It's not, unless somebody tells you, no, you know what? You're so rude the way you shouted at that waiter. I'm not interested. Fair enough. Don't be rude and shout at waiters. But other than that, there's no reason to think the worst of yourself. You, you mentioned rejection there. Like on NF, F, F, I can't remember a brain scan. They um when, MRIs, when, yeah, MRIs. That, that's the one. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I knew I knew some letters involved in there somewhere. Um, when you get rejected, like the same part of the brain fires up as when you experience physical pain, isn't it? So it, it literally it is your brain saying, "I ow, I'm in, I'm in pain." It's it's the same it's the same neurons, isn't it? It's the same neurons, and actually the expression hurt feelings um, is the same in every language. That hurt part, the damage part mm. um, is the same because even though we're talking about feelings you feel actually hurt it's, it really does feel like physical pain another interesting study in terms of uh, rejection and heartbreak is that they found that when like you know, when people get uh, broken up with or dumped when they're heartbroken um, they most of us in that state behave really out of character we might be the most confident person we decide to we start to behave very desperately and, and we do things which we're not proud of uh, later and uh, we, we incessantly stalk the other person on social media to see every bit of what they're doing and what that means or what it doesn't mean and and, and you know people feel so compelled and they they say it's just I'm not I'm not myself I'm going crazy because I'm doing these things and what People found in these functional MRIs, these are brain scans in which people are asked to actually think or do a certain thing, and then you can see what the brain does in action, that's the fMRI, um, is that um, the, when love is withdrawn, 
the same uh, area of the brain, the same mechanisms get activated, as you see activated when, when um, uh, heroin addicts are withdrawing from heroin. In other words, love is actually addictive. And there's even has been some pushes uh, on some researchers' part to get love classified as an addiction, which politically didn't quite work well. But, um, but, but the principle is sound. In other words, it does activate those areas. So when you just, the love of your life, and it could be the love of your last date, it doesn't matter, but when you feel heartbroken, um, you are going through withdrawal. And the withdrawal is from those powerful feelings um, of love or infatuation. And the withdrawal makes you act like an addict. You're craving, you can't think of anything else, that's the only thing that really matters, you can't function well, you're in distress, and you're distracted until you get your fix. In this case, the fix can often come by stalking somebody on social media, texting them 150 times in an hour, or going through all the images you have, but that's why you're behaving so out of character, because your brain is literally going through withdrawal, and when you know that, it is much easier to try and get a handle, right? It's one of those situations in which your brain, your mind, has a very different agenda than you do in heartbreak. And that's my most recent book. And, and part of the main part, I think, of that book that people have to understand is that when we're heartbroken, um, uh, we and our brain have very different agendas. For us, the most important thing to feel better is to diminish the presence of that person in our thoughts. For our brain... Uh, the, it's the opposite. That was so painful. The only way I can protect you is to make sure you will never forget it. And so our brain wants to maintain the person as actively in our thoughts as possible. Our goal is absolutely the opposite. And this, this is an example of where we need to not just take what our mind, our instincts throws at us, but impose our will when we know that our agenda is more important for us and more valuable than the evolutionary uh, uh, remnants of what our mind thinks we need to do. Okay, so building on that idea of heartbreak, so if we're trying to work out how to recover from it, recovering from heartbreak always starts with a decision, isn't it? Like a determination to move on when our mind is fighting to keep us stuck in that place. Why is that decision so imperative? Because your mind is going to be extraordinarily good at getting you to remember the pain, remember the person. And the way it does that, it'll make you idealize them. You'll only think of the great times. You'll only think, oh, it could have been so great. Even if you were complaining to all your friends about, ah, this relationship is not that great, all that goes away. Um, and you, to fight back such a strong urge, think again of a heroin addict. If they decide to go cold turkey, that is a massive decision. That's not a, maybe I think I'll go cold turkey. They won't go a minute. Mm. It is such a strong will you have to bring to those impulses to curb them. It is such determination you have to bring when your mind is telling you, no, no, but what if they're doing something really important and you need to go and see their Instagram account right now? You know, it, it feels, oh, wait, I, I forgot my toothbrush at their house. I have to call them and tell them. That, that, that's always feels so important. You won't be able to fight it unless you have made a strong, strong determination. And so that decision of letting go, of letting go of them, letting go of hope, letting go of the relationship, letting go of that chapter in your life has to start with a, it's going to be very difficult, but this is what's best for me. I know that in my head, even though in my heart it's telling me something very different. I know that in my head I am deciding to go cold turkey, to let all of that go. 
And is there a way to, uh, I guess, speed that process up or is everyone different? Like what, you know, I can do it in X amount of time. You, it, you might take you so long time or is that it's up to each individual case? Again, let's focus on effort, not outcome. So the best you can do are take the steps that will expedite that process as much as possible. You can't determine how long it's going to take. Some people say to me, well, I'm going to be upset for two weeks and then I'm done. And really what they mean by that, it's not ridiculous, but what they mean by that is I'm going to allow myself to indulge all those impulses for two weeks and then I'll stop. It doesn't mean they won't think about it or hurt Mm. after two weeks, but it means they'll stop indulging. And um, if you take the steps you need to take to not make mistakes, and you know, in this book I go through all the mistakes we make, and there are plenty of them, and to heal and to you know really take care of our emotional needs and fill the psychological voids that 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 breakups create, and do all the things we need to do in order to recover, we will recover as quickly as we can, uh, and that's the best we can do. We 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 can't you know, uh, impose a timetable, uh, we can do the best we can for our emotional health. And then the best we'll do is what will happen. You personally, what are some of your own favorite, and I'm sure like many of them in the book, but like, what, what are some of your personal favorite emotional tactics, tricks that you, that you use on a regular basis? Um, I use, uh, I mean, the, the, the difficult thing about writing these books is again, the impulse from your mind is to do certain things. And then Suddenly you know better, so you actually have to start, you know, practicing what you preach. And to be clear, it is difficult to do. It is much easier to just let our, you know, our whims uh, take over. It's just easy to to comply with the urge to do whatever we need to do. So I failed at something. It's much easier to avoid trying something else because that was so unpleasant. You know, how many people, when they have a breakup, say, well, I'm not going to date now for six months. Okay, why? Well, because I'm not ready. You say now you're not ready. How do you know? In other words, you're actually deciding you won't be ready. And you're deciding that this makes you anxious enough that you'll avoid it for six months and you think you'll be less anxious after six months of avoidance or more. The answer is more. So the difficulty for me is I know the right thing so many of the times it still takes a big emotional effort to do it. I'm by no means suggesting that managing your emotional health is an easy task. It takes an emotional effort to go to the gym when you don't feel like it. It takes an emotional effort to do certain uh, cognitive exercises or behavioral exercises you know are good for you. The ones I do on a very, very regular basis because I've done them so much, they have become habitual. For example, I, I'm, I work out regularly. Um, I've had lots of injuries over the decades of working out. Every time I finish a workout, I say to myself in some kind of way, I'm grateful my body held up for another workout. I was grateful I was able to do that because two months ago I wasn't able to do that. Last year that was, you know, that was inflamed and that was torn and that was this and that was. So the gratitude exercise is something I do. I do it about my brother. Here we are. It's now 16 years since that diagnosis that gave him an average five years to live. 16 years. I'm truly grateful for every day. I remind myself every day this is a gift. Um, And it's not trite after 16 years. It's true. Because I could wake up tomorrow and hear something happened, you know. And so feeling grateful um, is something I do on a regular basis. Um, I also, uh, I, I do battle with rumination, 
when I have it. I uh, really work on my self-esteem when, you know, I'm, I live a regular life. So there are things that knock me down. There are things that upset me. There are things that depress me. There are things that, you know, hurt my self-esteem. I really try and learn what I can from them in a non-judgmental way and then reinforce the things that I think are, are valuable that I have and that should encourage me to proceed. I'm a writer. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I wrote for 14 years before I got published. And when I say I wrote for 14 years, minimum 20 hours a week. For 14 years. Now, maybe I'm stupid. And it's not that I just kept writing the same thing over and over. I tried different things. At some point, I was writing screenplays. I was writing stand-up. It doesn't, you know, I was I was enjoying the process, you know. Um, I would have enjoyed it more if it didn't take 14 years. But nonetheless, uh, but, but I knew um, that... Um, I have enough to succeed as a writer. I just need to find the right vehicle, find the right voice, find the right opportunity. And when it came along, which was my first book, um, suddenly it was like, huh, now it's actually happening. Um, along those 14 years, were there times where I'm like, I could be spending my time doing something else? Many. But I knew I really enjoyed writing. In other words, I, I actually liked the writing. The part I didn't like is submitting and getting rejected. But the writing... <laughs> I did. And so I knew I wanted to continue with that because that's something I enjoyed. If I persist long enough, if I find the right thing, if I keep tweaking, keep learning, it will happen eventually. And I didn't know eventually it would be 14 years. But even had I, even had someone told me that at the beginning, I'd be like, okay, it'll take me 14 years to develop my craft well enough. Good. As long as I enjoyed it. If I didn't enjoy it, I would have stopped. But I was, I enjoyed the writing. So I didn't want to stop. Um, and again, persistence. Reinforce the, and I knew what my writing, where I was good with writing, where my weak points were. Um, so I, I was okay with that. I tried to work on the weak points, you know, and enhance the good ones. Um, whatever you set yourself, um, if you are uh, realistic and you are positive in your self-encouragement and you are constantly trying to improve and you are enjoying the journey, mm. you'll get there eventually. And I guess, and it's also about having good metrics. So, for example, if your metric was success equals a book deal, failure equals no book deal, in your head for 14 years, you would have been a failure, as opposed to if your metric was success is getting better every day, then you can focus on the love of the writing, the love of the writing. And then the book deal is that sure, 14 years later, that's just that's a bonus. That's wonderful. But so I guess so many people have in their goals have crappy metrics when they're setting themselves up for failure so for, for example with the writing um i was writing screenplays at some point and i would submit them to competitions and they would place well in competitions they wouldn't win they didn't get optioned they didn't get produced but they would place well i mean along the way i would get feedback that was like yeah you're almost you're almost there then it's a matter of timing it's a matter of luck and i knew those are external things i can't control i can't control what I keep doing, and that is keep working, and eventually the timing and the luck will be, you know, in your favor. And and that's the way you need to think about it. The metrics needs to be like, are there small indications along the way that tell you, yes, I'm on the right path. You know, for example, you know, if I'm if I'm trying to be an artist, and and every time I show my work to people, they're like, um, uh, let's get a drink, you know, like or something. I don't know, like the. Clearly, I'm not getting good feedback very, very, very consistently. I might, after some point, have realized I might not be that talented as an artist in this medium. But I have to find another creative outlet artistically because this medium of painting, 
you know, and, and by the way, um, I've spoken to many artists about this and they all say the same thing. That's not true uh, because you can learn technique and then you can learn to uh, draw and paint correctly. And then whether you have the artistic flair to make that something interesting is up to you, but you can do technique. So even that is something you can actually learn, you know. Um, so I, I truly believe that, that you look at, at the feedback you're getting, you look at the joy you're getting in the process, you keep improving. And um, I, at some point you will you will get there. Really quick question about guilt. Um, in your experience, what is the dominant driving force behind guilt? Is there is there like a is it individual by individual by individual, or is there a, like maybe one or two really common denominators that that drives for guilt? Uh, guilt is a a uh, is an emotion that is there to protect our relationships. In essence, you know, we are hunter gatherers. We grew up. Uh, we evolved in tribes. Um, uh, very important for us in tribes to maintain uh, relationships. And so it became advantageous for us to feel a sense of guilt uh, when we might have harmed uh, a person or our relationship with them because that guilt alerted us to fix something, to not do it again, to atone, ask for forgiveness, do something to fix that relationship, which then allowed that relationships uh, in the tribe to, to proceed um, as they should. Uh, and if we don't fix it, then suddenly, you know, again, in a small tribe where one favor, you know, begets another, you find yourself in an awkward uh, position. So guilt uh, is there to help us protect our relationships. Um, and it's like a snooze alarm. Um, when you feel it, you know, it's like, um, oh, I forgot to call my mother on her birthday and I'm at work, but I'm in a meeting. And then every 10 minutes, oh, don't forget to call your mother. Don't forget to call your mother. It'll go off every 10 minutes um, until you, you know, quickly get on the phone and, and call your mother. Now, uh, the idea there, that's, that's quite distracting. Uh, and so the, the problem with guilt is that when it's a temporary snooze alarm and we take care of it, great, it diminishes. When we call our friend and say, oh, you know, I'm so sorry I couldn't make it to your birthday and make that sound actually adequate as an apology, it will diminish. Uh, but guilt sometimes doesn't, and it uh, remains. And either because we didn't do the apology correctly, because there was no one to apologize to, forgiveness wasn't to be had. And then it can be very damaging. It, you know, we, we have a hard time enjoying life when we feel guilty. We don't feel we deserve to. We have a hard time indulging ourselves. It's quite distracting. Uh, we can go to the point of self-punishment, like uh, it's called the Dobie effect. Uh, it's based on the Harry Potter uh, house elf, Dobie, that would smash his head. And No, literally in the science, it's called the Dobie effect because that study came out around the time Harry Potter. So um, it's the house elf that kept smacking his head into the wall going, don't be bad, whatever. And, um, and we can actually, you know, self-punish uh, in certain ways. And so guilt is an important signal that we have to attend to because it does have an impact on our emotional health. And we do have to take care of the relationship uh, that triggered it. Um, and there are all kinds of forms of guilt, there are different complexities to it. Uh, but it's an important emotion. It can, it's a useful one. And we need to uh, use it. If we're extra sensitive and we 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 fall into that spectrum of you know even letting guilt hang around for longer than it's necessary, would um, would one of the main antidotes be just be a bit more like self compassionate and actually a bit more self love and you know being your own sort of ally? Some of the other things we were talking about earlier is that is that one of the keys? Yes, absolutely. There, there are, many of us are guilt prone, i.e., the that that signal goes off a little too easily, you know, where that threshold is for that signal is a little too low. So it goes off a little too easily and it's harder to turn off 
um, even when you do the right thing. When you know that about yourself, you have to then know that what that means is that you are wired to feel guilty um, at times you should not. To feel guilty when really there's no need to feel guilty. To assume too much responsibility of a situation rather than to allocate it in a more reasonable and realistic way. And once you know that about yourself, what you have to do is take care of the guilt but also learn to act despite it. For example, if you have a a friend who's extraordinarily needy and lacks certain boundaries and they keep asking things of you that are unreasonable, Um, and you need to say no and you feel terribly guilty for saying no to an unreasonable request, right? It's your anniversary. I'm really upset. Can I come over? No, it's my anniversary. What kind of friend are you? And you actually feel guilty, but sorry, it's my anniversary. So you need to say to yourself, you need to act despite the fact that you feel guilty because you need to acknowledge and realize my guilt um, is not appropriate here. There's a litmus test you can use to tell if your guilt is appropriate. It's a simple one. You put yourself in the other person's shoes. If it were you calling a friend as needy as you felt and they said, it's my anniversary, how likely are you to say, well, I want to come over anyway? And if you would never do that because that would be horrifically inappropriate, it's horrifically inappropriate. And if you're feeling guilty for saying no, that's your guilt going off incorrectly. You need to act despite it. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? For me, a fulfilled life means one that is emotionally healthy. I mean, it's what I do and it's what I believe. It's one in which we are functioning up to our capacity, but not just in terms of achievement, uh, emotionally, in terms of the satisfaction we draw from life, the joy we draw from our relationships, our ability to smell not the roses, but the roses, the grass, the moss, every aspect of what we see around us, to to really feel the privilege of the lives we have. To me, that's a fulfilled life. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have a positive impact on their lives? Um, I think just a simple thing, it's not, this is not my invention, but I think it's, it's simple enough. Um, one simple thing you can do today is wake up every morning and take five minutes to write down on your phone, in a pad, whatever it is, write down three things you're grateful for. And by the way, so when you do that, it's not, I'm grateful for sun. Um, that doesn't, you're not really grateful for sun. Um, you're grateful for, you, you enjoy the light. You might be grateful that it's a bright day. You might be grateful that it's a warm day and you enjoy the feeling of the sun on your skin. So be specific in terms of what actually brings you that gratitude. It's not just the existence of the sun. And if I'm grateful that I'm healthy, okay, that's generic. Um, but what specifically? Well, yesterday I had a headache. I'm grateful I'm waking up today without one is more specific. So if you write down three things that you're authentically uh, grateful for every day, it will start your day on a, on a pretty good foot. Even if you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, that will get you a little bit back on the right side. Guy, thank you so much for, I've really enjoyed this. It's been absolutely fascinating. And thank you for giving up your morning in new york and yeah chatting with all of us it's been yeah it's been it's been wonderful it's my pleasure